Our sermon scripture this morning comes from the book of Judges, chapter 2, starting in verse 6 through 22. When Joshua dismissed the people of Israel, went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnaharis, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died... They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we've heard your word read, and so may it do its work in us. May you pierce our hearts with the goodness of yourself, that we might love you and you alone. This we pray in your holy and majestic name, amen, amen. So I was a missionary kid for a while growing up, and uh, what that means is I got to experience culture shock twice. 
got to experience culture shock moving to Slovakia and then culture shock moving back. If you're not familiar with the term culture shock, it's the feeling of disorientation you get when you've lived in another country long enough and you begin to realize there's all these cultural differences that we take for granted of how we should interact, of how we show interest in people or how we interact with people, et cetera, et cetera. And um, at first, when you visit another country, it's novel, and so it makes it fun. That's why people like to travel. But typically, around three to six months, if you stay somewhere long enough, the novelty wears off, and it becomes more shocking and disorienting, and there's this weariness. Missionaries typically experience this, again, around three to six months. But what happens is, is if you push through that, eventually you acclimate to the foreign culture, and it becomes more familiar to you, feels more like home, and you move through culture shock. Well, we were in Slovakia for four years, so I experienced it moving to Slovakia, but then I, reverse, I experienced what you call reverse culture shock, which is when you're away from America long enough that when you move back, you realize you have become less American than you had remembered. And there's parts of American culture that now seem foreign. That's reverse culture shock. So when we moved back, to give you an example, um, we dressed differently. I was entering the fourth grade when we moved back, uh, and we lived again in Europe. Now, when people hear of Europe, a lot of times they think like France or Germany, and there's kind of like a Euro-trendy vibe that can exist in those countries. Like, oh, you were like the cool kid. But we, we were in Slovakia, which was not Western Europe. It was Eastern, post-Soviet, communist Russia, Europe. Second world country, kind of impoverished. Not impoverished, but, but you know, kind of poor. I didn't look cool when I came back. I just looked different and weird. And so I, I, I dressed differently. The, the, the fashion sense was different. Uh, when we moved back to the States, we were struck by how much bigger the portion sizes are in America. So there are, inter- like, McDonald's moved into Slovakia when we were there, so there was a McDonald's. But a, a supersize in Slovakia is not a supersize in America. And I remember we were driving somewhere, and my mom was really tired, so we pulled into McDonald's. My mom's like, oh, I'm really tired. I should get a supersized coffee. And so she orders that, and they, they like, hand her a gallon of coffee. And we're like, this is bizarre. That was different. Then also, Americans, we, we drive everywhere, right? In, in, in Europe, most families, if they own a car, they own one. Two-car families are very strange because there's public transit, and so you take the bus or the tram, and so you just get used to walking. It's like if it's a two-mile walk, it's not a big deal. Everyone does it. But in America, it's like, whoa, it's a quarter mile away. I better get the car out of the garage and make this a drive. So they're just, they're, they're, we'd been out of the country long enough that these differences stood out to us. But here's the thing. Very quickly, we acclimated once again to being full-blooded Americans. Uh, you know, we, we, we now drive everywhere, right? Like my son has piano lessons a quarter mile away, and I drove him this past week because it was a little bit warm. Uh, I think I dress mostly normally, and we're used to, you know, I, I know we'd never order a supersize anything unless you want to die of a caffeine-induced heart attack. So we just, like, we've, we've acclimated back into American culture. I'm telling you all this for a reason. Because this is what is happening to Israel as they move into the promised land. They're acclimating to Canaanite culture. Uh, If you remember from from last week, what we're told is that uh, the Israelites failed to drive out the remaining nations. There were still many Canaanite nations living in Canaan. And what we're given in chapter 2 is a theological analysis for why the period of Judges was so bad. And the theological analysis is that the reason everything went so bad during the time of the Judges is that Israel became more and more like the Canaanite nations they were supposed to drive out. And this is seen, most of all, in their idolatry. 
and turning to the gods of Canaan, Baal and Asherah. So our outline for us this morning is first the beginning of the problem. Second point is the expression of the problem. Third point is the judge's cycle. So first point, beginning of the problem. Let me read again for us verses 6 to 10. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So again, in chapter 2, giving a theological analysis for what went wrong, and we're given one very pertinent detail, and that is that there has been a generational change. Joshua has died. Joshua was the one who, I mean, Joshua is unique in that he was there from, from the beginning. He experienced God delivering Israel from Egypt. He saw the nine plagues that Yahweh brought on Egypt, humbling the greatest nation at the time. He saw, and then the, 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 the uh, peers of, of Joshua would have seen God preserve Israel throughout the time of the wilderness. They saw God descend on Mount Sinai and give the law. And then they saw God go in and drive out the nations before them. They saw the, the, the walls of Jericho fall down. Joshua and his generation were people who didn't just know of what God had done. They had seen it. They had witnessed it. They had experienced the power and the might of God himself. But here, there's a generation who were born in the promised land. And they did not see any of this happen. And the problem is told for us in verse 10. A generation arose who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. What does that mean? They didn't know the work the Lord had done. Does that mean they, they, they just forgot all these miraculous events? Well, no. Because, in fact, uh, in 1 Samuel 5, 200 years later, the Canaanites, sorry, the Philistines, who are a Canaanite nation, they remembered that God had destroyed Egypt. Israel had not forgotten. I mean, you don't forget those kind of stories in a generation. What does it mean that they did not remember what God had done? Well, it's that they did not have an experiential knowledge of God. They knew of God. They knew about God. They maybe even knew parts of his law, but they did not know God. They didn't delight in his law. They didn't rejoice in his presence. They didn't tremble before his holiness. They knew of things about God, but again, as it says, they did not know the Lord. There's a warning in there for us. It is possible to know true things about God, even great things about God, and yet not know God himself. Um, when, I was in, when we were in San Antonio before we moved here, I volunteered in the youth group at the church. And one summer we had a student who grew up in that youth group and then went to college, and he was returning after his freshman year at University of Texas, Austin. And, um, and he had this amazing year. He got involved in a campus ministry, um, and his relationship with Christ just began to grow by leaps and bounds in a way that it never had before. 
And I'm not sure he was even a Christian before he joined that campus ministry. That's how profound that experience was. But it was the summer after, and, and he's at like a youth group hangout. And I didn't know him very well. I'm just kind of overhearing this conversation. And he was sharing with another youth leader. He said, before I joined this campus ministry, I'd never seen what it looked like to really love God. I didn't know what it was like to actually love God. And he was saying in this way that he was frustrated because he'd grown up in church and according to him, he had never seen what it looks like to actually love God exemplified for him. Now, this was a good church. He wouldn't have gone to it. It wasn't a good church. Uh, in fact, the pastor of that church is now a president of, of, of a well-known evangelical seminary. But I think there may be some truth in what this student was saying and that it was also a very like, intellectual and heady church that could veer towards almost distrusting any kind of emotionalism that might creep in. And here is a student who had grown up knowing about God, but he felt like he'd never been shown what it means to actually know God. Every generation that experiences the saving work of Christ, who actually tastes of the Lord and finds him to be good, there is always a possibility that their kids will only know God through their parents' experience. They'll only know God by proxy. They'll, they'll, they'll know God because they know the stories their parents told of encountering Jesus, but they themselves have not actually encountered Jesus. This is a potential in every generation, again, who encounters the saving work of Jesus Christ. But to know God through our parents' knowledge of God is not to know God. That is not a living faith. And this is what happened. A generation was born who knew things about God, and they, were and they were kids of people who actually had walked with the Lord, but they themselves did not know the Lord. Now, here's the thing. God knew that this was a possibility, that a generation would arise, that they, had, they didn't have the advantage of having seen God actually do these things. How can they come to know this God? And so God had prepared for this. He had prepared to, to teach Israel how to pass on a, a vital, vibrant, living knowledge of God knowing God to the coming generations. This was the whole point of all the festivals. If you've read you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and it's like, you shall celebrate this feast, and you shall celebrate this festival. And it kind of seems like, when did they do work? Like they're always going from one festival to another, feasting for a week here, for a month here. Well, the whole point of these feasts and festivals was to take an event that people had not experienced and make them real. Help people to relive God's saving acts so that the generations who had not seen it could still experience it in some sense and have it, again, not just a knowledge of God, but actually knowing God. So you had the Feast of, 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 of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths where Israel would, lit, would set up a booth and they would live in, in, with their family in a booth for a week and they were celebrating and reenacting and reliving when God provided for Israel in the wilderness. For 40 years, every day, Israel would wake up There'd be manna on the ground. There'd be quail for them to eat. God would provide water for them. Would, he would guide them with the smoke in the day and the fire at night. And so for a week, every family would live in this booth and remember how God had provided for them. You want to talk about, you know, like, I, I can tell you about that, but there's nothing like living it out. Right? Or, or the Passover meal. What was the Passover meal? It was reliving the the tragic night when the angel of death went throughout Egypt and killed every firstborn son, except for those where there was the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of a house. And then the angel of death would pass over. 
not because of the righteousness of the family, but because God had provided a substitute. And we can talk about that all day, but until you actually reenact it, right, makes it real, makes the saving acts of God real. So that's what these were all for, these, these, these feasts and these, and these um, uh, festivals. They're supposed to help coming generations know the saving acts of God, not as stories they heard from their parents, but as something they were living out themselves. And in fact, this is why Christians from the very beginning have met together at least once a week, usually more than once a week. Um, because there is something about being together physically, reenacting our faith together, that is so important for us to actually knowing God. Not knowing things about God, but knowing God. Now, in the Reformation, there was a good rediscovery of the importance of proclaiming God's word on a Sunday morning. That was good. In, in the Middle Evil Ages, there was a movement away from the sermon and, and, and really kind of an emphasis on the liturgy. As, as, and and there was a, it was a good recovery of the importance of proclaiming God's word. But sometimes we can treat a church service like, well, I come and I hear a sermon, I learn some new things, and I go home. And it's like, if that's all we're doing when we gather together on a Sunday morning, well, then it probably would be better just to stay home and watch it online. I mean, why, why go through the effort of coming to a physical space? Or better yet, find a better preacher than me, which is not that hard, and download their sermons and just listen to it once a week whenever you have available time. Like, why do we take time out of our day to come in the physical space with other people who, you know, are people? <laughs> well, the reason is because there's something about being together with other humans where we reenact God's saving acts together. When I preach, brothers and sisters, I am not just trying to present the interesting tidbits that I discovered in my, in my, in my preparation. What I want is for you to meet God again every morning through his word. I want us to encounter the grace of Jesus Christ again and again and again. And if you don't learn anything new, I don't care. I want us to rediscover what we've always known and let it be fresh. But even beyond the sermon, like there's something that's so powerful about hearing our brothers and sisters sing to God and hear the voices as we praise God for his saving acts. It makes those saving acts all of a sudden real to us. Or how when we pray for the persecuted church, why do we get down on our knees? Because there's something about doing physical embodied activities that makes it real. Oh, these are our actual brothers and sisters who are suffering around the world for the gospel. Of course, communion. Why do we eat bread and drink juice? Well, it's because this is, this is his body. This is how we reenact God's saving acts of his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. God had prepared Israel to hand on a living faith to the next generations. And based on how Judges goes, I think we can assume that they were not doing that. They were not engaging in the prescribed festivals and feasts. For one, they're never mentioned. But two, the future generations did not know God. But even beyond the feasts and festivals, God also prepared for this by preparing Israel, by, giving, uh, by changing the nature of parenthood. And God gave specific instructions to parents. And this is in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. Parenting is not just about raising kids who are socially well-adjusted, who can go on and be productive members of society. Yes, I hope my kids are all like that. I do not want them living with me, you know, when they're 50, okay? I would like them to go out. But the greatest joy and obligation and stewardship of parenting is raising kids who know and fear the Lord. To first know the Lord ourselves and then teach our kids what we've encountered in Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. There, there is no guarantee in Scripture that if you love the Lord and you try to raise your kids to know the Lord, that they will. It just doesn't exist. And sometimes parents can be crushed when, when, when their kids walk away and say, what did I do wrong? And it, it, it may not be your fault. But here's the thing. What seems to have happened here is that an entire generation walked away. An entire generation did not know the Lord. And when that happens, I, I think there's an indication that parents were failing in their obligations, that members in, of the church who were older were failing to pass on a living faith to the younger generations. That seems to be what happened here. A generation arose that knew of God, knew things about God, but did not actually know God. And this leads to a whole cycle that will run throughout the book of Judges. And the expression of this problem is what we get to next. Let me look at, so again, first point, the beginning of the problem. There is a generation that did not actually know God. How is that problem expressed? Let's look at verses 11 to 15 again. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. In verses 18 and 19, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So again, it a new generation is born who does not know the Lord. And how does that find expression? Well, the people begin to turn away from Yahweh and worship the gods of the land, the Baals and the Asherah. Now, this is interesting. We're going to read some pretty messed up stuff in Judges. Judges take some pretty dark turns. Uh, and yet, the most urgent problem in Judges is never all the consequences that we will see or all the things that will happen or the things that Israel will do. It's idolatry. That, the greatest urgent problem of Israel is not their enemies. Uh, it's not all the things. It's, it's, it's Israel worshiping the gods of Canaan. And so I think it's worth just... And so, for instance, uh, when the angel uh, of the Lord rebukes them at the end or at the beginning of chapter 2, remember from last week, 
what's the problem with Israel? It's not that they didn't drive out the people necessarily. It's that they weren't breaking down their altars. Like Israel was to go into the land and, and break the altars of the foreign gods. These are not, these are false gods. They're counterfeit gods. Don't countenance them. Don't tolerate them. So, so idolatry is going to be a major theme throughout Judges. So it's worthwhile just camping for a moment on this. And this is what the expression of the problem is. It's idolatry. Now, it's, it's, so we're going to take a moment and look at what idolatry looked like in the ancient Near East. And then is there a contemporary analog for us today? So one thing that's helpful to know about idolatry at this time is that idolatry is very inclusive. Um, if you weren't an Israelite, in other words, if you were almost anyone else, you were polytheistic. Israel was very unusual in that they believed in one God, but every other nation had multitude of gods. And the gods they worshipped were gods who were gods over particular spheres of life. So right, you might have a god over the sea, a god over the land, a god over the harvest, a god over love, a god over war, a god of fertility. Uh, sometimes families had like family gods that were just for them or gods that kind of were over their clan. So here's the point. You, you could have many different gods, and because none of them were, were a universal god, they didn't compete. It was very inclusive. And so when Israel shows up on the doorstep of Canaan, the problem is not that they worship a new god, Yahweh. From a Canaanite perspective, it's like, yeah, your god did some incredible stuff. Let's add him to our system. The more, the merrier. We can totally incorporate Yahweh into our religious worship. The sticking point when Israel shows up is that Yahweh had declared that he'll be worshipped alone. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There are no other gods. You cannot worship God and worship these other gods. So, so first, idolatry is very inclusive. The more, the merrier, right? Second, let's just look at why exactly Israel would have found these gods so attractive. Uh, the gods that are mentioned here are Baal and Asherah or Ashtoreth. Baal, um, when it's referred to in the Old Testament, typically refers to the storm god, the god who brings the rains. In other words, the god who controls harvest. In a, in a country which is mostly farmers, that's the god who brings prosperity. Asherah was the god, was a goddess of love and war. Okay, so with Baal and Asherah, you have the gods who cover prosperity, safety, and fertility in a time when having kids was oftentimes a matter of survival. You needed kids to survive. And here's the deal. This is why Baal and Asherah were so attractive to Israel is that they seem to be working really well for the Canaanites. Again, the gods that cover prosperity, uh, military safety, and, and fertility, and here are the Canaanite villages, and they're prosperous. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land with cities that were militarily impressive, that again, unless God had gone before Israel, they had no hope of defeating these people. And so Israel's moving in, and you can imagine a generation, and it's ironic, right, because God had already shown that he is better than these gods by driving out and destroying many of the, of the cities, but here's a generation that hadn't seen that. Again, they knew about these things, but they had not seen it. They didn't know the Lord. And so you can imagine this new generation reasoning in their heads like, well, Yahweh, he was, he was really good in Egypt. He worked really well there. He was really good in the wilderness. But we're in a new time, a new place, we need different gods who can provide in different ways. We need a God who can protect our cities, who can give us fertility of our lands. And you know what? Baal and Asherah, they seem to be doing a pretty good job. 
The gods of Canaan seduced Israel with promises of prosperity and love and safety. And here's the thing, too. Baal and Asherah worship were highly erotic forms of worship. Asherah, goddess of love, worship of her was highly sexualized. But also Baal. Uh, Baal is a storm god. When he brought the rain, what that was viewed was, was, was Baal impregnating the earth. I'm not going to explain that image any further. It's gross. But so cultic prostitution was part of worship of Baal. And the idea was, again, prostitutes are always women, <laughs> never men. And a man could go and have sexual relations with a prostitute, and this was supposed to encourage Baal to kind of come and do his thing. As one commentator puts it this way, in contrast to the lofty theology and austere morality of Yahwehism, the Canaanite religious system offered exciting and often erotic cult rituals. In other words, it looked like a whole lot of fun. Of course, that's only if you don't know the Lord. Right? It's only if you don't know that the precepts of the Lord are right and they rejoice the heart. That the law of the Lord is perfect, revitalizes the soul. But if you don't know this, I mean, if you don't know Christ, the yoke of Christ can look very heavy. Right? What's the yoke of Christ? Renounce yourself, pick up your cross, lose everything, come follow me. It looks so heavy. But when we actually know Christ, we know that his yoke is far lighter than all the sins that we bore before we came to Christ. But if you don't know God, yeah, that looks pretty attractive. And again, this is what was so crucial, is that for the Canaanite religious system, it was never either or. It was never worship Baal and Asherah or worship Yahweh. It was like, you can have both. And so again, you know, the Israelites are surrounded by Canaanite neighbors, and their Canaanite neighbors are like, hey, you know, you don't need to reject Yahweh, just, why don't you just try out Baal? Have a, offer a couple sacrifices to him, still do your Yahweh thing. And so as you read through Judges, it seems pretty clear that Israel sometimes doesn't even view their worship of Baal and Asherah as rejecting Yahweh. They don't view it as a substitution, they view it as an addition. But what Judges reveals theologically is that any time that we divide our worship and our love between God and anyone or anything, it is rejecting God. With God, with Yahweh, with the God of the Bible, it is either or. It is never both and when it comes to matters of worship. So that was idolatry in the ancient world. That's why it was so attractive to Israel. The Baals and the Asherahs, they seduced Israel with these promises of, again, uh, prosperity and, 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 and abundance and safety and love. Is there any contemporary analog, though, for us? I mean, if you walk down Barstown Road, last time I checked, you don't see a whole lot of gold statues lining the roadway. So idolatry still exists in, in, in our world. And, and honestly, I think Tim Keller's done some really helpful writing about this and thinking about this. And Tim Keller, he, he gets at the essence of what idolatry is, and then he shows how it is still very much present. And, he said, and Tim Keller says this, idolatry happens when we take good things, we make them ultimate. That's the essence of idolatry, taking something that's good, but making it the ultimate thing, that which we want and desire most of all, right? So Baal worship, what, what was it? It was taking a good thing, which is having a good harvest. It is good to not starve to death, amen? Yes, 
It is good to have resources and finances and to do well. But they took this good thing, and whether, again, it was a desire just for prosperity or a desire for control, to, to be able to control their future, but they took it as, uh, this good thing and they made it the ultimate thing, and then they personified it as a god and they actually worshipped it. And here's the thing, when, when, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, you're willing to sacrifice for it anything, including your children. And in fact, child sacrifice was part of Baal worship. So that's what idolatry is. It's just taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. And if that's the case, then idolatry is not just something from some distant past or from other cultures, but it is very much alive and well in Louisville, Kentucky. Again, you may not see gold statues lining Bardstown Road, but we have what, again, Tim Keller calls idols of the heart, where we take good things and we make them ultimate things. For example, is career success a good thing? Yes. <laughs> God is not honored by mediocrity. And in some ways, Christian workers should be the best workers. Why? Because you don't work for your boss. You work for the King Jesus Christ. And so there is no corner you're going to cut because he is worthy of your best work. At the same time, work is not your ultimate good. It's not your greatest desire to just advance and, 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 and succeed and excel and gain applause. It's not the ultimate good. But when it becomes that which we love most, we're willing to sacrifice anything for it. And how many parents have sacrificed their kids or sacrificed their marriage, putting in long hours, nights, weekends, so that they can climb that career ladder? Again, a good thing becoming an ultimate thing is than an idol. Or perhaps closer to home for my generation, a millennial, like uh, physical and mental health is important. It is good to have good mental health and be healthy, right? It's, it's good to put in boundaries in our life and have margin. It's good to eat healthily and exercise. But when that becomes the ultimate thing, it can distort our priorities. So for instance, uh, I have not been a member of a gym since Caleb was born. Used to always be a member of a gym. I love working out in a gym. But once you have kids, it's like, if you're, if you're a dad... And, and you're like, wife, go watch your kids so I can go work out for two hours at a gym. Like, no, it's just not okay. Like, your kids take up that time. And it's funny, I, I kind of, you know, millennials, uh, when you look at generational differences, we're one of the first generations that are like having significantly less kids. So you're, you're welcome. I'm trying to work back that, you know, that, that, that trend. But my generation, we just don't have kids. And I think one of the reasons is we realize, hey, if I have kids, it's going to keep me from going to my CrossFit club or my Orange Theory club. It's like, is good health a good thing? Yeah. But you're going to pick that over having, like, over creating humans with eternal souls? Like, it distorts our priorities. Or good mental health. It's good to have good mental health, but y'all, we worship a Lord who is a suffering servant. Peter says that Jesus himself suffered, leaving us an example that we might follow in his footsteps. I mean, how was Jesus' mental health in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed and sweat? Tears of blood or however it goes. If we're so concerned about never feeling badly, we'll, we'll never follow Christ. One more for our students. Is marriage a good thing? Amen. Yes. Hallelujah. But ask anyone who's been married longer than six months. And can marriage bear all of your hopes and expectations and dreams? No. Only God can bear an eternal soul. So again, what is an idol? It's just a good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. And when we view it with that 
framework, we see that there are very much idols in our culture, idols of freedom and autonomy, self-expression, idols that, again, you won't see lining the streets of Bardstown Road or, or Main Street or whatever, but very, very powerful, influencing our music and our politics and our media and our art. And in some ways, they're far more dangerous than the idols of Canaan because we can't see them. They're in our hearts. So how do we fight them? For Israel, it was easy. Break down the idols. Break down the Asherah poles. Pulverize the idols. Have no part in them. Well, our idols are in the hearts. How do we fight idolatry when we can't see what we're fighting? And, and actually, it's the same way for us as it was for Israel. It's know the Lord. What happened in Israel? A generation arose who knew things about God, but they didn't actually know God. They didn't have an experiential relationship with him. And so they turned to idols. How do we fight idolatry? Well, it's know the Lord. The reason my idols of the heart are compelling is because in some way they're able to imitate, in a very cheap and partial way, they're able to imitate God. Right? Idols come to us and they make promises, promises of happiness and, 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 and control and comfort and safety or just rest for our souls. They give us these promises, and to some extent, they seem to work, right? I mean, Israel coming in, if the land had been a wasteland, they would not have been tempted by Baal. But it's like, boy, Baal seems to bring prosperity. It seems to be working. And so these idols that we run after, whatever it may be, like, they seem to offer us these good things. But here's the thing. Every idol, ultimately one day, may not be for a while, but it will be one day, will, will reveal its true hand. And it is not what it promised us to be. And again, this is what happens in Judges as Israel walks after Baal and Asherah, after these promises of prosperity and love and safety. Things just spiral into chaos. And things get darker. And life is held to be cheap. And the strong begin to prey on the weak. And we see, oh, this is, these idols promised these things, but this is who they really were. This is who they really are. So again, we fight idolatry by knowing the one that idols can only and ever partially and badly imitate. And it's the Lord himself. It's the goodness of God himself. Whatever we're looking for in those things that we're tempted to give ourselves to, brothers and sisters, the Lord is better. He's better. He's the one that we were created to seek and the more that we know the Lord, the better that we'll be able to spot the counterfeits. Why? Because when you know the real thing, you're not fooled by counterfeits. When you've enjoyed and embraced the real deal, you're, you're not satisfied with things that are just cheap imitations. This is why the psalmist doesn't say, no things about God. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste, physical sensation, hear, see, know the Lord, rejoice in his goodness, weep before him over our sins, but receive his grace, walk in all his ways, delight in his word. And not only will we be able to spot counterfeit idols, but they won't look appealing to you anymore. When we know God's holiness and his purity, impurity is not tempting, it, it, it's just sad and tragic because we've seen how it's supposed to be. 
when we know God's faithfulness, all the promises of all the idols in the world is just writing on the sand compared to God's faithfulness. Here today, gone tomorrow. And of course, we know God's goodness. There's just nothing comparable in this created universe to the goodness of our Lord. So taste and see. Don't just know about the Lord, but seek his face and know him personally. That's how we fight idolatry. But a generation rises that does not know the Lord, and they're instead seduced by the idols of the land. And again, theologically speaking, this is why Judges is so dark. Because they don't know the Lord, and they're running after idols, and it leads to all kinds of darkness and brokenness and evil. And this leads to a repeated cycle that we'll see throughout Judges, which brings us to our third point, the Judges cycle. Let me read verses 16 to 22 for us. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. And they soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So this is a cycle that happens. First, Israel wanders away from the Lord, and because of that, uh, God stops blessing them. They become oppressed by the nations around them. They cry out to God. God then sends them a judge who delivers them. They follow uh, the judge and they follow the Lord as long as the judge lives. The judge dies and they turn back to the idols. And this is a cycle over and over and over. And one of the theological explanations we're given for this is why is Israel consistently overrun during this period by their enemies? Well, it's because they've turned away from God and they've embraced idols. That explains all the bad things that go on. But there's another hermeneutical key here that is so important. Again, another theological explanation for what happens. And it's as, if not more important than the one we've been talking about. And it's seen in verse 18. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Four, it's, it's giving an explanation for why God does something. Why does God raise up judges to deliver his people? It's because he's moved to compassion. He's moved to pity by their 100% self-inflicted suffering. Israel's suffering is 100% self-inflicted in judges, and yet still God has compassion. He's moved in his inner being at the suffering of his people. I'm a dad. Happy Father's Day. And as a dad, it's very difficult for me to show compassion when my kids have self-inflicted harm. And let me explain what I mean by that. 
Like when my kids are being crazy around the house and they're chasing each other, I'm like, stop, stop. You can't run around the house like that. You're going to run into a wall and hurt yourself. Don't do that. And they don't listen to me. And they run into a hall, you know, wall and bonk their head. And, and assuming they're not actually hurt, right? I'm not a monster. It's very hard for me to have compassion. I'm like, what do you expect? If you'd listen to me, you would not hit your head. Praise God that God is not like me. I think we all have an inkling that God shows compassion when we suffer for no fault of our own. We understand that God draws near to the brokenhearted. Like, that makes sense. But God has compassion on us when our suffering is 100% self-inflicted. When we sin and, and we break his laws and we experience the consequences of that, hear me, God is not in heaven with his arms crossed saying, I told you that idol would crush you. I told you. He's moved to compassion. In fact, God is a God who's moved to such compassion that one day he'll be moved to compassion to send his son for the sins of the world that were, again, to bear the burdens and judgment of the world that was self-inflicted. So again, each time Israel groans under the affliction of their enemies, God sends a judge to deliver them. And this is because God shows compassion every time. Uh, again, there'll be shocking things in Judges, left, right, and center. The most shocking thing in Judges, though, is it doesn't matter how dark things get, it doesn't matter how far Israel wanders, each time God tells them, even this is not beyond the bounds of my compassion, because he sends a judge again and again and again, because again and again and again, he's moved to compassion by the sufferings of his people. God's compassion will never run out on you. What are you running after this morning? What idols are you tempted to lay yourself before? What are you seeking after? Don't be deceived by the promises of fake gods. Only God is good. Only God is faithful to the end. And again and again, this Jesus comes after us, and he won't stop coming after us until he comes and brings us home. And that is the foundation of our hope. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that in you is the light of the world. And that you really are the source of rest for our souls. You are our peace in chaos. We confess that there is nothing this world can offer that is better than you. Help us to taste and see that you are good. Help us to know you not just by hearing of our ears or knowing of facts, but help us to know you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.